Welcome to Looney Engineering, a Canadian software podcast. I'm Chris Naismith, a senior engineer at Hopper. And I'm Andrew Clarkson, a junior software developer at Universe. And today we're going to be talking about interviewing. Andrew, what's your experience with interviewing? Many, many years ago, long before I got into tech, I worked at a company uh, that hired and managed training professionals. And as a recruiter there, I was doing the whole gamut of it. Um, I deal with the, uh, the ATS and bringing in uh, posting ads, uh, bringing in candidates, actually speaking to people, selecting them for, res- uh, for interviews over the phone, in person, uh, right through the end to extending them an offer. That was, uh, that's been my major experience with interviewing. On the actual tech side of things, I obviously haven't been interviewing other people yet, but uh, I had a few interviews before I started my position, but uh, a little less on that side of the table in tech. Piles of them uh, before tech, though, as a uh, chronic job humper before I got here. Yeah, and on my side, um, at Hopper, you know, I've interviewed several uh, candidates. Um, in past roles, I was responsible for interviewing contractors for the company as well as full-time employees. Um, interviewed juniors, co-op placements or internships. I've also done mock interviews with um, mentees before and through various, um, I was, uh, I worked at a college. And so I always had um, students that would be like, hey, is there anything that you can do to help me prepare for a, uh, you know, my first job and stuff like that. And so I've worked with uh, students before. So sort of all over the map. um, But I'd say I the majority of my interviewing has been as a on the interviewer side last like four years or so. All right. Awesome. Well, let's dive right into it. So there's a pretty standard process that I'd say most companies go through, but in tech, it seems like there is a very standard process that you're going to go through in interviewing. Once you have applied for the job, whether it was through uh, the company, uh, you got a referral, something like that you're always going to start out with some sort of HR screen. Yeah. And depending on the level of role, um, the majority of mine is just an opportunity for HR to sort of explain the role that they're hiring for, um, what the team does, um, what the expectations are. Sometimes if you're really lucky, they'll sort of let you know what the compensation for that role is. Um, so before you jump into the whole process, And then it also gives you an opportunity to sort of like share yourself um, with HR and be able to say like, this is who I am. This is why I would be a good fit for the role, so on and so forth. Yeah, I think getting the compensation out of the way right at the beginning, it's something you'll get into more a little further on a career. It's probably a little bit harder as a junior. At least that's what I felt it was. Uh, But it's something. Don't waste your time and don't waste their time, right? If it's going to be well below... Why are you even going through all of this? Exactly. And I would say that some companies, um, I I don't want to say all companies who do this, but um, companies who get burned by a candidate going through the whole process and then disagreeing on comp is usually some places that start with that upfront. Um, So I'm, I'm usually fairly transparent of saying like, hey, I'd like to know what the compensation for this role is so that that way, you know, I can make sure that I can maintain my quality of life that I have and that, you know, essentially I'm not going to get to the offer stage and it's a pay decrease. 
Yeah, and it can be concerning if they don't want to be upfront with you. It's like, why? Are you trying to get me pot committed here? So it's like, oh, he spent all this time, like he's gonna accept it. It just if they're not if they don't want to be upfront with it, um, might be a little bit of a red flag. Not saying it's a problem, but it could be. Exactly. It's yeah, it's sort of like a code smell, you know. Um, <laughs> but uh so Andrew, when you when you've interviewed for tech roles, what was the sort of like HR screening like for you? The HR screen for me was very much just a like, are you a real human being? Are you a person? Are you the person who sent the resume in, who applied for this? Um, are you the person that was referred to this position? And they just want to confirm things like uh, it might be like where you live, what your um, citizenship is, all the things that they cannot bend so maybe it's they can only hire people that live in canada or maybe it's they can only hire people of i can't think of any right now but there's specifics that um i'm totally blanking on here help me out here yeah we we've had not just um country but even certain states um i worked at a place where they weren't able to hire people in florida just because of florida tax law um, was a good example. Yeah, and uh, another one that's uh, now coming to me um, with citizenship, they might not be able to uh, hire people on a visa. And if you are on a visa, you want to find that out right away because it's so important that you move quickly in order to land that job that there's no sense in wasting that time. So that's actually a good question to ask from your side. Can you hire yeah. people that are in my specific situation? And then sometimes one other thing that'll come up during the HR screening is um, how much time it would take you in order to put in your resignation at your uh, current place. A lot of uh, interview processes take time um, and just being able to know at the end of it, if everything goes according to plan, you know, is it two weeks? Is it four weeks? Um, I think it can come up multiple times in the process, especially once you get to the offer stage. But in the past, I have had screenings where they just want to know, um, hey, if you're interested in this role, just so that we have it documented in our system, what would be the timeline that you're looking to move? You know, is it something where you only need two weeks at the end or are we talking like months? Yeah, and there's uh, there's a bunch of things to be considered of on both sides for this one. If you tell somebody that you can come there immediately and you are currently working, that can be a big red flag for the company about you. Wait a second. You're willing to just bail out on this company that you're at right now with no notice, really. If you do it to them, you'll probably do it to us. That can be, that can be a problem. Yeah. It's, it's definitely one of those you have to um, play it. Um, You know, depending on if they say, hey, I'd like to give two weeks notice to my current employer um, to allow them time to offboard, that's fine. If you say, I can start tomorrow, the question is, is why Why can he start tomorrow? Is it is he actually employed? Is he just going to dip on? Yeah. Yeah. And there's... And the... Go ahead. And this needs to align with your resume. If you are currently unemployed, hell yeah, you can start tomorrow. That works absolutely. Um, but yeah, and the more... I think senior you get in your uh, positions, the more careful you're going to need to be about that. Absolutely. So after the HR screen, uh, typically what will happen is they'll schedule a new interview and it'll be a behavioral interview, uh, commonly with the hiring manager. Um, So first question is, is what would a behavioral interview 
be? What what is it? A behavioral interview is where they're actually going to find out a little bit more about you. It can be a little technical, but the standard kind of definition of a behavioral interview is they want to know how you respond to certain situations. So this might be how you've dealt with problems in the workplace. It might be uh, how you've dealt with good things in the workplace, especially as a manager. They're going to want to know, like, how do you celebrate things? Uh, How do you treat your people? Uh, How do you work under pressure? Different things like that. Yeah. And a big one for that I've seen is how you work in a team, because in a lot of places, you know, you're not coming in as just a single person, you're going to be working with others. And so being able to make sure that you're not toxic, uh, that there's no issues with like ego or anything like that are kind of big ones that come up during the behavioral interview and ultimately making sure that you would be a good culture fit for the company. Um, because yeah, you don't want anyone to come in and just end up destroying the morale of the team. Sure. You might be a good technical fit, but in a lot of places people would rather good culture fits with, um, let's say not as strong technical ability because they can teach you that technical ability. It's really hard to unteach someone to be a dick. Yeah. I think that's becoming more and more prevalent and important as, uh, as a lot of these tech companies are growing more and realizing that. It's not just about the tech, it is about the people. And if your people are happy, you're more productive and more efficient. And when they drop that guy in, that's not uh, ideal to work with, all of a sudden the morale of the rest of the team goes down. And then sure, you hired a 10X developer, but they've pissed 20 people off. Yeah, and the difference I find when it comes to the behavioral interviews of more like junior focus versus more senior is it's also a good opportunity for being able to talk about the projects that you've worked on and ultimately what gets you um, excited in tech. So for myself, when I uh, was interviewing for senior roles, they would want to know, you know, what was maybe the most complicated project you've worked on um, and trying to understand like what made it complicated. Was it, you know, unknown feature requirements? Was it the people? Was it just the actual work itself? It's usually never the work, but it's, uh, they're just trying to see like, if there's something that's difficult, how did you overcome that difficulty? Yeah. And this is like you just said, there is really the time to sell yourself. It's, it's hard to sell yourself in a technical interview because there's kind of a solution to it. There, there's a, a way to go about that. But this is really the time to sell yourself to the company, why you're going to be awesome culture fit, because you did your research and you know what kind of company this is. Um, you have actually read the job interview. You know kind of what kind of person they're looking for. So in the behavioral interview, if you are a junior, it's going to be a lot different the way you want to aim your answers than if you're a manager. Absolutely. And The one thing to keep in mind when you are interviewing for a technical role is while this is a behavioral thing to try to understand how you think um, and and solve problems and just sort of like what makes you tick, uh, you do have to make sure that you're trying to answer the questions through the lens of a technical side of things. Um, You know, talking about maybe maybe as a junior, it's again harder to do this. Um, but if someone is asking you, you know, tell me about a time that you had a difficult coworker and you start talking about, you know, you were a customer service representative and, you know, you had a really difficult coworker because they just talked all the time and it made it hard to get your work done. Probably less relevant. Um, hopefully 
you know, you can have something that you can lean off of. Um, it doesn't even have to be work. It can be, you know, personal things where, oh, I had this uh, project that I was working on, whatever it be, right? But try to frame it from a side that is more relevant to the workplace rather than, you know, just, you know, a high school job or, you know, entry level job where it's not the same. And this is a perfect time to talk about your products a little bit too. You can now start injecting some of those things again as a junior. Um, hopefully you've worked on some projects with a team and now you can aim them at that. And in behavioral interviews that I've been in, they've specifically said, we know you're junior, you know, this is potentially your first uh, role in tech. So your answers may not be specific to this, but if you've got a way to, uh, that would be ideal. So it'd be, oh, um, maybe a difficult teammate. That was, oh, this project that I worked on, um, so-and-so, we disagreed on certain things, on implementations, on how to go about something, on code structure. Okay, how did you deal with that? And we can get right into it. And now it's something that they can see you in the company a little bit better than they can see you, like say, at McDonald's or something. Yeah. So, Andrew, what would be like a question that someone might be asked during a behavioral interview? A good behavioral interview question. So something like we just got in there. Uh, tell me about a time you disagreed with a teammate on a technical implementation. What would be a good answer? What would uh, impress an interviewer? Yeah. So I would, if it was me personally, I would talk about a time, um, let's say like there's a library that you're wanting to use. Another teammate wants to use a different library. Um, and trying to figure out like what would be the best library to use. Um, in a lot of cases, some people might rely on something because they're familiar with it rather than it actually meeting the needs of the project. And so in the past, if I were to use an actual example of this, um, there was a project I was working on where someone wanted to use one form library. Um, it was Formic. I wanted to use another library called React Hook Form. And when sort of like, asked about, well, why do you want to use Formic? And they're like, well, I used it at my last place. And it was like, okay, and what else? And they're like, that's it. <laughs> and so what we actually did is we sort of looked at what made sense for the project. Uh, we looked at everything from like, how popular is the library? What's its sort of release cycle for either bug fixes or new features, all that sort of stuff. Um, and then ultimately deciding on what was the best for the project. Um, because that's the thing is you can learn new things. Um, sometimes people will just like lean heavily on stuff that they already know. And so it was just making sure that what we were choosing was the best thing for the project. I love that answer specifically because it follows the star format, which all of us who are interviewing should be very familiar with. So Chris went through, he set the scene situation. He gave the details of what was going on. So when you're asked a behavioral question, the interviewer has no idea what you're talking about. So you need to tell them what you're going to talk about. We're going to set the situation. Next one is task. Uh, what was your responsibility in that situation? So Chris talked about uh, what was going on. What did he need to do uh, in that situation? It wasn't about the other guy. It was about him. It was, uh, this is the library. This is what I want to do. And then he talked about, what he needed to resolve the action he talked about what steps they took to address it he went through uh, they had a discussion they looked into uh, the different libraries they they found out why the coworker wanted to use that library 
then they got a little bit deeper into it, um, the actual implementations of it, uh, the upkeep, uh, main, um, is it an actually actively maintained library? And then what was the result? What actually came of all of this? And that was, we had decided on this library for these reasons. And by going through each of those steps, uh, you're really able to set the stage for an interviewer so they can understand, they can kind of put themselves in that situation, they understand what happened. And at the end of it, they could see why what you did was great. And this is something you should practice. A bad um, answer to something like this would be, oh, you know, I worked on this project and we disagreed on the form library that we wanted to use. And it was like, okay, um, you know, sometimes they'll have to ask for more clarifying. So how did you end up solving it? Oh, uh, we went with the library that the other guy wanted because um, he cared more, you know, like not answering the question, not trying to be able to determine what the impact was. Like you don't have to always present an option in which you quote one um, on a disagreement, but showing how you came to a compromise and that it wasn't just you falling over, you know, having a bit of a backbone in order to argue your case. And even if you lost, um, which I would probably say in an interview might be better if you have a good example of a time where you sort of caved in or came to the other person's side, because it'll show you in a better light of not everything has to be your way. Um, but just making sure that you can explain the impact of what your actions are. You're not just doing stuff blindly. You're thinking about its ramifications on a project and being able to work in a team environment and not just be that sort of like lone wolf. That is what makes a good answer versus a bad answer. Yeah. And it also describes a few other questions that you're going to get. So uh, I want to pass along some, some things that I did, some, some good advice on dealing with situational questions because, uh, sorry, behavioral questions. You're probably going to run into this. The chances of not going through a behavioral interview uh, these days, pretty low. Um, but there's something that you can very much so practice, just like your technical interviews. And you can do things, uh, jump on Google, look up the 50 most common behavioral interview questions. There are lists of them out there. You can do top 10, top 20, top whatever. Go through them and don't skip over one just because it's, it feels irrelevant or you don't like it. Go through them and write out an answer for every single one and then practice telling those stories because they shouldn't sound rehearsed. It shouldn't be like, oh, wait, I forgot a thing. But it, you should have told these stories before. You should be familiar with these stories. It is your story. Um, you can go in and blindly do this, but if you've actually thought it through, there's a much better chance that you're actually going to give a good answer that doesn't leave the interview being like, huh, and having to ask you all these follow-up questions. A good follow-up question. You, you know you're doing a good job if they're follow-up questions because they want to learn more about something you did there, not because they don't understand. Yeah. Yeah. It shouldn't be to clarify because your answer is so vague. Okay. So you've done the behavioral questions. You've crushed it. They think you're going to be a great culture fit. They're excited for you to, they're excited to work with you, but we're not there yet. Uh, what's next? Yeah. So next up would probably be some form of a technical um, interview. This is, so, you know, the first interview with the screening is with HR, second one probably with the hiring manager. When it comes to technicals, it could be the hiring manager again, or it might be a member of the team or another you know, software engineer within the company. So 
you know, there's a couple different ways that these can occur. Um, I've had, you know, live coding where, you know, you do pair programming with the other engineer on the call, you work through a problem together, whatever it be. Um, another thing could just be a more challenge style. So instead of maybe working on, I've, I've had where they say, hey, fix this. There's a bunch of bugs here that's fix the bugs or um, that's build a component that can do this and sort of showing like practical skills. Um, but you also have sort of like leak code hacker rank challenges where it would be, you know, using different algorithms or data structures in order to solve problems. Those ones are more, you know, computer science um, theory type stuff, probably not as relevant to what you're going to be doing uh, day in, day out, but can be used as a way of determining um, your proficiency as a software engineer. The other third option uh, for a technical is some sort of take home. So this would be one where after your behavioral, you would be given a problem with some sort of deadline saying, hey, build this website that does this thing. It has a front end and it has a back end. Maybe it has tests as a part of the requirements and that it has to be deployed. So you have to share a GitHub with them and then the deployed link, Netlify, Heroku, whatever you're using. Um, and so all three of those are very different. They all have different sorts of pros and cons with it. Um, but let's, let's start with the, the live coding. Um, Andrew, have you done much live coding with interviews? Uh, not a pile. Um, the position I'm in right now, we did have a live coding challenge. It was kind of paired, um, where I could ask questions, um, I was, I did like this because it was super relevant. I was allowed to jump on Google and look things up if I needed. It was like, oh, I forget how to do a for loop and you can jump over there. And they were totally okay with that. And I thought that was really cool because it was a lot more relevant to what you'd actually do on a day by day. Yeah, I've, I've had a lot with the live coding where it's totally fine in order to um, ask questions, to use the internet. I've had ones where you can't use the internet and it's done purely off of memory. Um, I think those were a lot more common when you would be in like a boardroom doing an interview where maybe you didn't have access to a laptop. Um, but when you're yeah, using a computer, especially remote, you can ask questions. Um, in fact, questions are definitely something I recommend asking because it's being able to show your thought process and being able to clarify what maybe the questions are. They might be intentionally vague in order for you to ask questions about use cases. Um, again, maybe not as relevant for someone that's getting their first job, um, but definitely more so relevant when you're at the senior level. I think the, depending on the question, the, the actual challenge, the questions can actually be as or more important with a junior. And this is very much so speaking to my very small specific experience, but it was actually stated right at the beginning, like talk your way through it. We want to hear what you're doing because the technical challenge that I went through was less, we want to see you get the right answer and more, we want to see the way that you think and the way that you deal with problems. Yeah, so, I've been in several interviews where the candidate is pretty much radio silence during the entire thing. Um, they'll say, oh, um, I probably need to use, you know, like a depth first search here. And you're like, okay, so you could do that. And they go, oh, I could also use breadth first search. And you're like, okay, yeah, you could use both. Uh, and they're like, oh, um, I think I'm going to do 
picked up for search and you're like, okay. And they're like, and then I, and you just see them like typing. There's no thought. There's no, they could, they could have an example diagram of depth for search open on their other monitor and they're just typing out what's there. Um, mm -hmm. What is important is being able to explain what you're doing. And it's like, okay, if you're doing a depth first search, fine, that's great. But explain to me how it works as you're going through it. You go, oh, I need to have, you know, I need to have like an iterator and I need to keep track of, you know, where I've gone down and all this sort of stuff. And you can start explaining how it works because you, you're not trying to explain it to the interviewer because they obviously know the solution. They're giving you the problem, but you need to be able to show your understanding of the problem and what the solution is. And more so by having that kind of, let's say, open line of communication, it leaves you open to communicate. You can actually ask questions or maybe if you're stuck on something, some places you're going to have no chance. Like you're not allowed to ask questions. The interviews are not going to help you, but it's never going to hurt to try uh, one way or the other. If you are stuck on something or if you're unsure, um, you could be like, I'm kind of thinking this, like, uh, am I on the right track? Or what are your thoughts on that? Especially if it's supposed to be a little more collaborative, like take yeah. everything you can get when it comes to that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, a specific live coding that I've done is it involves, it is recommended to look up documentation um, as a part of on our side. We don't explicitly say at the beginning, look up documentation, but it's one of those things. Those are things that we are looking for because the problem that we have is with a specific library. So we don't expect the candidates to come in knowing that library, you know, perfectly. Uh, we don't even expect them to know it at all. But we say like, oh, hey, I want to look up what is the props that are expected on this component. And so we'll look it up. We'll look at the API and it'll say, oh, this is what's expected. Oh, we're passing the wrong object to it. Or, you know, we're passing it as a string and it's expecting a number and, you know, that causing problems. So that's, that's definitely, you know, ask questions, get clarification. Um, don't leave anything to be assumed. You want to have as clear of a narrative as possible for both your train of thought and the problem that you're trying to solve. Yeah, if you're going to walk out of that interview and have like all these things like, oh, I should have done this, should have done that, like that stuff's going to happen. But anything that's right there at that time, get it out there. The worst they can say is, oh, I can't answer that. Yeah. And when it comes to a take home, this is where it can get really tough is during a live interview, you have the ability to explain your thoughts. A take home, you don't have that. And so Sometimes you have to use various methods of being able to communicate um, what your train of thought was at that time. So one example could be commit messages. If they're going to look at the commits, the other thing could just be comments in the code, um, or it could even be, I'm trying to think like maybe like UI elements. I don't, probably not as relevant, but mostly comments and git commits would be hugely important for sharing what your train of thought of uh, was as you go through it. Um, but when it actually comes time for that, say like evaluation of a technical, um, a take home is usually followed by an actual, it's, it's so you do the, the take home, it's not, you know, at, during the interview, and then you'll have a follow up where sometimes they'll discuss uh, the results of your, 
take home assignment. And that's where they'll start asking you questions. Well, why did you solve it this way? Or, you know, was there anything that you felt you could have done better? Or if you, instead of spending a day on the, or not a day, let's say instead of spending like a, a couple hours on this, if you were given a week to work on this, how would you have tackled it differently? And, um, you know, explaining how your code works, because that's one of the things that I find is nice about a take home is it gives you that opportunity to, you're the knowledge expert about your code. And so it gives you a little bit more confidence in speaking about what you wrote, as opposed to the live coding where, you know, there's already that stress of being under the spotlight and then having to like code on demand can be quite overwhelming. And that's exactly why they're having that follow-up is they want to see, did you actually write this code? Do you know what's going on in your code? Can you talk about your code? Did you just copy and paste this off of, uh, off of Stack Overflow? Did you just ask um, ChatGPT to build it for you? Like, do you actually Did you get someone else to just do the assignment uh, for you, a friend of yours? Um, yeah. I, in, in less on the interviewing side, but when I was teaching college, uh, it was very common for me to get assignments that were clearly written by someone that had a higher level knowledge than what the students had, or you would get, of course, identical assignments. Mm. And my go-to every single time is, well, I want you to explain to me what you did here. And usually without fail, I mean, you do have some students who were very high level, but you already knew that going into the assignment that they knew what they were doing. Um, so it would be like, I want you to explain to me what you did here, what you did there. And they would freeze. They wouldn't know how to explain it because of course they didn't write the code. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, you know, in a lot of ways, it's actually very similar to, um, being in school, you know, it's just having to explain your work, what your, how did you not just what's the final answer, but what was the work that led to that final answer, showing it, explaining it, having a full level of understanding of what you did to solve that. Now to take that one further, what are your thoughts on the take-home assignment that has a follow-up chat in which they ask you to, now let's extend this a little bit further? I think it's, it's difficult. I... I'm okay with it personally. So I'm someone who I don't get easily, um, what's the word that I'm looking for? Flustered. Yeah, I don't, as, as I get flustered and trying to figure out. Uh, <laughs> Is that so? Yeah. Um, I don't get easily flustered during interviews. And so if someone wants me to live code, that's totally fine. I don't have an issue sharing my train of thought and all that sort of stuff. So for me, if there was a take home and they said, great, uh, let's add this new feature. I think the issue can be, I've had take homes where they ask a lot of you uh, to build and it takes a lot of time. Like it wouldn't, most take homes will probably take longer than a typical technical interview where you were just live coding because those problems are made to take 30 to 40 minutes. Um, and then you have some sort of time in order to, you know, you have the introductions at the beginning, questions at the end, um, but you, you, your time box, whereas with a take home, I have known people who have done eight plus hours on a take home um, and it can be a lot. So I think to your, to your question, it depends on what the level of complexity the take home was. 
But if it was something that's fairly simple, they gave you a shell that's already pre-done, you add in the feature, you send it back to them, and then they say, oh, we like this, but now we want you to add something else. I think that that is probably acceptable. Um, it just has, knowing the context is really important. And what would you say to, um, as a way of advice to people that are very nervous when it comes to live coding? I would, yeah. So I would say one, um, the interviewer is not there to make you fail. That is not their job. Their job is to help you get to the solution. There is sometimes, you know, you can sort of fail by asking too many questions. I wouldn't say like an outright fail, um, but their job is to get you to the finish line. There have been so many interviews that I've been in where, you know, clock's ticking. You're sort of like going, okay, they should be able to solve this in the last 10 minutes. And if, if, you know, it gets to seven minutes, that's when you start giving them hints so that ideally that interviewee should leave that interview feeling happy with what happened. Um, they might say that they bombed it, you know, they might feel that, but you were representing the company. And so someone shouldn't come out of it feeling like it was an awful time because it's a reflection on the company. Mm-hmm. Um, so when it comes to, you know, like live coding uh, and being stressed, I wouldn't worry about it because at the end of the day, I know a lot of very good developers who struggle when they're, you know, under the microscope of an interview. It can be extremely overwhelming. And you just have to remember that your job is to share your thoughts, the way that you approach the problem. And if you can't at the time, think of how to solve it through actual code, then start writing pseudocode, write your comments, try to write as much as you can, because if you freeze and you don't share it, you you can't be marked on what you didn't put down. That's it. Yeah. And to just go through anything. Yeah. You can pseudocode that you have some idea about it or some, some way to approach it. Like show that you're not going to give up. It's only 30 or 40 minutes. You can struggle through that. Okay, so you've gone through this. You are sitting in the uh, the room with the interviewer. You have either succeeded or failed, but hopefully you've succeeded in some way at your uh, live coding challenge. Uh, what do you do now? Do you just close off the Zoom and, and wait for the email from them? Absolutely not. Um, you know, when you're, when you're interviewing at a company, you're not just they're not just interviewing them as much. You're also interviewing them. You're wanting to know if this is a place that you want to work. And so um, for this technical, uh, in most of my experience, it's always been either a member of the team or someone that, you know, is an individual contributor in the company. And so it's a great opportunity to be able to ask about like work-life balance and what is, how does the team operate? What does the day-to-day look like? What are the sort of meetings that happen um, you could even start getting into, you know, how, how does the team decide what to work on? Who's in charge of new features? Um, asking about just, you know, anything that you want to know about sort of the day-to-day is a great opportunity because one, it shows interest in the role. And then two, it, it allows you to sort of show what your interests are through your questions. So if you're just asking like, you know, a bad question would be, how much do you make in this role? You know, that the questions around compensation are better for the recruiter. And in some cases, sometimes the hiring manager 
um, either at the beginning or the end of the interview process. Um, when it comes to knowing about the job, this is the person that you want to ask, like, what, what's it like working here? Why do you enjoy working here? Why do you still work here? Yeah, it's, it's very important to think about the questions that you're asking, because if you're asking those bad questions that you pointed out to the wrong person, so how much am I going to make here to the, uh, the guy who's interviewing you, you're wasting both of your times as well as you're not very aware of what's going on. You're not, it shows, I'd say maybe a bit of greenness um, of not understanding kind of how all of this works. And uh, you're very much so wasting your own time. Like if you've got that person in the room, ask them the questions that are relevant to them. Um, and the, the ones that you said are amazing. Like what's work like here? Um, how's the team? Like that sort of thing. What will we be working on? Who decides on the work? That's so much more important for that interview right there. Get the right questions to the right people. It's just going to, it's so much more valuable. A question that you could ask at any stage during the interview for pretty much anyone is, you know, what are the problems that this team is facing? You know, why, why is this role being hired for? Um, the other thing could be, um, what is your favorite thing about this team? Or what is something that you feel the company could do better? What is something that um, and, and I think honestly asking about things, not saying like, you know, you don't want the company to air its dirty laundry, but asking about where the team could improve, which is the same thing, but on the positive side, it gives you insights into what the team sees as a priority, what is an issue. Um, and the team could even elaborate on things that they're trying to do in order to improve it. Um, so I know a big thing is when things went remote, trying to make sure that the company maintained its culture um, and making sure that the employees, you know, had relationships with their coworkers um, that were positive is something that a lot of companies had issue with. And that was something that I asked very early on when I was interviewing during COVID is what do things look like for this company in a remote environment? Yeah, those totally make sense. And and ask your ask your questions. Find out the things you want to find out. I think that's another one. Um, it does have to be the things that you are trying to learn about this company. Um, there's a lot of things you can kind of show off, like you said. Um, but but find out the things that you need to know in order to be happy working at this company. So we've gone through the technical, we've gone through the behavioral, we've been screened, we have been interviewed uh, every which way going possible. Um, the long awaited offer comes in. How do we deal with this? How do we make the most of it? Well, the only thing that I would also add before getting into the offer, the technical can sometimes be multiple technicals. That's mm. one thing that I don't think we've discussed is, um, depending on the company and I'm going to share a little bit on my side with Hopper, uh, we have multiple levels of technicals. So we'll have some technicals that are going over, um, algorithms, some that are going over data structures, some that are going over, you know, just general coding ability. Um, so each one is typically different in order to monitor a different trait uh, when it comes to a technical ability. So just know that going in that sometimes it's not just one technical, you might have a series of technicals, uh, which is pretty common. That's something that you can find out right from the beginning. You can ask in good question for the first screen, 
what does your interview process look like? And they're going to say, oh, it's going to be a, a one-hour behavioral. Um, then you're going to have three technicals or two technicals or whatever it is. You're going to meet with this person and this person. And then you're going to have an idea of where you're going next rather than just kind of bouncing between them blind, not really sure what's next. Yeah. And the bigger the company, usually the better that they're going to be able to answer that. Um, I had interviewed at Meta slash Facebook, and they literally give you a PDF of what to expect at every stage. It's very well documented. There is no questions. You know going into it what is going to happen. Um, sometimes with smaller startups, it might not be as refined of a process because they're sort of making it up as they go. Mm-hmm. Um, Andrew, you mentioned in a previous podcast that you were actually the first hire in about a year uh, for Universe. So was it a well-documented process when you interviewed? Yeah, um, I think because it was well-documented previously, uh, they just were able to fall back on that because because the way they do it uh, is really good. So it was a question that I did ask right at the get-go. What is this going to look like? Um, and they told me, you're going to go in, we're going to have this chat now, um, then you're going to have two 30-minute behavioral interviews, and then you're going to do a live technical coding challenge. And that was really helpful for me because I was able to prepare for them. And that is where I often talk to people that are like, oh, what should I be preparing for for this technical? I'm like, well, what did they tell you? Well, I didn't ask. Why not? It's not cheating to find out this information. Like prepare very focused and very specific. And the more you can get, the better. When yeah, you said The company that, is going to want you to be set up for success, but... Yeah it's kind of on you to also make sure that you are set up for success. So if they're unable to answer the question of what your next interview is going to be like, that could be a red flag during the hiring process, but you need to make sure that you know what's coming up and what you can prepare on. Yeah. And it's going to be pretty rare that you run into a company that can't tell you what your next interview looks like. Um, and yeah, I would be, would be concerned if you run into that, like they should know where you're going, what you're looking for. If they have no idea and it's going to take a month, this company's probably a bit of a disaster. Which right. Could be well, the only thing that I would say though, is when it comes in, sometimes you have like external recruiters. So you might have that initial screening with someone that's outside know. the company and is unfamiliar with the process. But as soon as you get to someone that is in the company, they should be able to give you a full rundown of what to expect. Definitely. And uh, yeah, ask, ask the questions. Ask so many questions. I think a lot of people feel like they're almost cheating. And it's not. Like you are here to get something better for yourself. And by hopefully you've at least got the confidence to know that them hiring you is them doing something for the company as well. So everyone wins. Yep. So again, we've, uh, we've gotten through the HR screen, behavioral, technicals. Now we're at the offer stage. Everything's going great. And so what to sort of expect at this stage is you'll probably be talking to the recruiter um, who initially screened you, at least that's how we typically do things here, um, is you're talking to them and they say, hey, uh, good news. We just wanted to let you know that we're willing to extend an offer to you. Um, and then they say, but, you know, what, uh, what, are you, what are you looking to make, Andrew? Yeah, so that's, that's they're going to lob it to you, depending on the company. But uh, is, their intentions will be different depending on the company. But that sort of question, I think you should always throw right back to them. And that's, uh, well, what's your range? Hopefully you've talked about it already, but if you haven't, what's your range for this position? 
Yeah. That's one thing is understanding where you're coming in, you know, am I coming in as a junior an intermediate, a senior? Um, and you could say, you'd be like, well, I'd be interested in knowing what level that I'm coming in at. And they go, oh, it's going to be an intermediate position. And you're like, oh, okay, so what is the typical range that someone as an intermediate makes in this company? And, you know, sometimes they'll give you a range or they'd say, you know, what is your, what's your number? What would you like to make? I've, I've had some fairly aggressive recruiters um, mm -hmm. wanting to get my number. Um, that can be a sign of them attempting to underpay people. Um, cause they're trying to get them for as cheap as possible. So the one thing that I would say is when it comes to negotiation, try as few, try to never be the person to give the first number, because oh, if you give the first number, you've already put out there, what is, what's it. And if your number is lower than what their minimum number is, you don't frequently get their minimum number, which is higher than yours. Yeah. You um, really you really can't win by giving a number first because if it's lower than theirs, you're probably going to get it and you're going to be happy with it. You're going to have no idea you could have made more money. If your number is way higher than theirs, immediately they're thinking, oh, they're not going to be happy with what we offer them. And if you do accept the job, there might even be the question of like, well, how long are they going to stick around? They want more money. Exactly. Um, the other thing that I try to do, uh, this is a personal thing that I do, is asking them what compensation at the company looks like in general. And so, because compensation isn't just what is your take home, you know, it can be everything from maybe they have a uh, 401k RRSP matching program, depending on Canada states or, you know, whatever uh, pension program that your employer has uh, could be insurance or health. Um, any sort of bonuses or equity and stock programs that the company offers. All of these are things that are taken into account of how much it costs in order to have you work there. And some things you don't see that money. Um, but of course the company is going to be paying it behind the scenes. You also have to know like taxes and all that other sort of stuff that needs to be taken into account as well. So that's the one side is knowing what comp looks like at that company. The other thing is um, knowing what is a number that would make you happy, you know, sort of understanding what your expenses are, what you feel like you should be paid. Because at the end of the day, if you're that, let's say, let's give a number of like a hundred thousand, right? Just nice, even number hundred thousand. If that makes you happy, then tell them that that's totally fine. Um, the question is, is if you found out that your coworkers were making more than that, would that upset you? And you do play this game. Like if that number makes you happy, great. If you feel like you would be concerned to find out that you were underpaid, then maybe you should do a little bit more research of what that role either typically makes industry wide, or if you can find specific research on that company, then you could say, what does someone at this level make at this company? And that goes all the way back to the beginning. If you just get this conversation out of the way, you know the range that they're talking about, uh, you're, you're both so much further ahead because when you've asked that and they say, oh, the range for this job is uh, 120 to 150,000 and you're sitting here being happy with 100, you're like, all right, cool. I just might've lost out on 20 to $50,000 just for speaking up. And it can be very uncomfortable and some recruiters are very good at getting you to talk first and making it uncomfortable. And you've got to think about this 
there's no no better time to make more money than right now at the at the interview. Uh, sorry, while you're interviewing, not even so specifically the offer, but while you're interviewing, you're looking to increase your compensation if you're moving from another um, job and moving up. But you're probably not going to get a twenty to fifty thousand dollar raise in three months. But you might be able to get more money right now. So that's where you've got to be really careful of this. It might be uncomfortable. You might not like doing it, but it's a lot better to deal with that right now than later on down the road. They go, well, this is what you brought us on. What we brought you on, blah, blah, blah. Also, if you know the upper end of that range, you know what you can start asking for down the line. Yeah. And it's one of those things where as soon as you get a little bit of information, you can use that not just in your current interview, but other interviews. So Mm -hmm. Maybe you're interviewing with two companies and you're about to get an offer. And one company says, hey, our range is 120 to 150. And you go, great. The other company, maybe you're getting an offer from them and they say, um, Andrew, what do you want to make? And you already have this 120 to 150 in your pocket from the other one. And you can just say that. You could say, I was talking to another company and the maximum that they are willing to offer for their role is 150. Don't, personally for me, don't share the minimum number. It's never it's not going to work out in your favor. So just say the other company is willing to go up to 150. Yes, and perfect way to then do it. it exactly. And then it puts them in a spot where you've given them a number, you've shown your worth because now you have another offer on the table. Um, and they now know what they sort of have to either match or beat in order to get you, uh, which is, you know, a competing offer is always going to be your probably best negotiation tactic, period. Um, if you can't have a competing offer, that's where, you know, trying to do your market research and understanding what your worth and that level should be in that market. Um, because a lot of it is, uh, geography specific and level and company and all that sort of stuff. There's so many variables that go into what someone's going to get paid. Yeah. Um, I don't really have much to add to that, but, uh, <laughs> excellent points. Yeah. And then the other thing is, is um, knowing, do you want to work for this company? You know, I hope that you answered that at the beginning, um, but you've gone through this whole interview process and now you're trying to figure out, does it make sense to work here? Am I interested in the work? Am I interested in the people? Am I interested in, you know, the challenges that I'm going to face? Those are all great things uh, that come up at the offer stage. And if you're trying to maximize your compensation, making sure that you can have as maximum value to that company is where you can start asking for higher on that range scale. Um, and when it comes to the offer, I think there's like a second piece that we haven't we haven't really mentioned, or you and I haven't even really planned to talk about this. Is let's say you're currently out of place. You know, this isn't your first job, right? You're not switching careers. You're not you're it's not your first job, but it's your second job. And assuming you're working at a place is you might get the counter offer at your current place. You go to put in your resignation and uh, your work goes, we don't want you to leave Chris. Like, why, why are you giving your resignation? You say, oh, I was approached by this company and this is what they're willing to give me. Some places might want you to have a physical offer letter to show them so that that way they're not just taking your word for it. Um, But they're going to say like, oh, you know, what if we were willing to match or in some cases, what if we were willing to beat that? And 
my personal advice in general is never take the counter offer. It might be great in the short term, but there's probably a reason that you were looking elsewhere. Um, the other thing is, is if they're willing to pay you that now, why weren't they willing to do it a week ago or two weeks ago? Um, you know, you, and this is one of the things of why people can, well, it, it's been shown people that stay at companies make less than people who leave companies. Right. Um, you've touched on a really, a lot of really good points there that I agree with. Um, the first one, um, we want to see a, an offer letter to bet. This is what it is. <laughs> that, that's when I really say like, no, it is what it is. If you don't like it, I am, I am coming to tell you I'm leaving. Um, don't feel that you need to show that hand either. Um, and I 100% agree with like, there's a reason you're leaving. It doesn't have to be malicious. You might love the company that you're at. And I know Chris, this is a position you were in. Um, you might love the company. You might love what you're doing and all the things, but there reaches a point where you've got to move on for your own learning. Um, it, it may not be a money thing. It may be to, to experience different companies, how to do things, to make sure that you're not becoming stagnant in your knowledge and your skill set, especially if you are very career driven and you're really looking to climb that ladder of uh, compensation and responsibility and prestige and that sort of thing, um, depending on your career goals. But you've really got to, um, you've got to look at exactly that. Why were you thinking about leaving? And they might give you something real nice. They might beat it for whatever reason, but you got to think about a month down the road when you're sitting there and you're now thinking about like, oh yeah, you were thinking about leaving. I might've been at that other company. I might've been doing those other things. Like really, really sit on, sit with this and decide what you want to do and what's going to make you happy. Exactly. And I've been in a lot of situations where my counter offer was really easy to not accept because it wasn't even close to what the new offer was. So you might be in a position where it is, um, you know, really easy to decline the counter offer, but sometimes, and you know, I don't want to make people worried because I don't think this is the norm, but sometimes you might be guilted into staying, Oh, you know, it's going to be really hard to do things without you being here, Chris, you were, you know, a rock star, or, you know, you got so much stuff done. And again, you know, if not that everything's about compensation, but if, if you're a rock star and you're getting everything done, then why is another company willing to pay you more uh, to do what you're doing currently? So it's just, it's definitely something uh, to be aware of when you do get to that offer stage and you have a job is that you're going to have to leave the current job. You can't, can't do both. Um, some people try, but that's a different topic for a different day. <laughs> Yeah, and, and it's not always uh, malicious on the other side as well. Like they might actually be like, no, we really want you to stay. And maybe they just can't afford to pay you more. Maybe there are things going. I'm not going to get into the like, ooh, corporate kind of thing. But there can be a lot of different things going on. There are a lot of companies that genuinely do care, genuinely do want you to be there. But again, it goes back. You do have to take care of yourself and you do have to do the things that you want to and that make you happy. Exactly. So let's, uh, let's wrap this up. Okay. Um, yeah. So we've gone through the entire interview process in uh, in pretty good detail. Uh, a little bit of experience from both of us, uh, especially Chris, who's been through a lot more of this on both sides of the table. Um, we hope that this has helped to prepare you, whether you are a junior early career looking for that first or second job, uh, whether you're a little further in or, or maybe you're senior. This isn't something that you deal with so often that you can really be a pro at. Every time that you go back and do it, you really got to revisit the skill set. So 
hopefully us going through this has, uh, has helped to prepare you, whether no matter the position that you're in right now. Yeah. And if anything that we've said today has helped you um, later on in your uh, interview process, we would love to hear from you. If there's anything that you feel like we didn't cover, um, you know, contact us. Maybe we do a follow-up because while we've been talking about the process, we haven't talked about any sort of, you know, what happens before interviewing, like, you know, what sort of prep should I do? What happens after? Uh, we've talked about what happens when you started that new job. Um, but there's a lot of sort of missing pieces that we would love to share um, and just making sure that it provides value to you as the listener. Um, thing that we would love for you to do if you've listened this long is make sure that you follow us on your platform of choice, Spotify, Apple, Google, um, or any podcast player that supports RSS. And also don't forget to rate the show. It is a huge help to us. It helps us get discovered. Um and just keep making these episodes for you. Yeah, these are a lot of fun. And uh, it really seems like people are enjoying them. So we love to hear that, whether it's the shout outs on LinkedIn, um, the, the messages you send to us. Uh, we love seeing all of that. So thank you so much for listening. See you. Bye.